we're going to be looking for the next 45 minutes or so um, at a little piece which I've discovered recently in, uh, in Sefer Yirmiyahu, uh, the book of Jeremiah. I'm kind of calling it Jeremiah's Dilemma. Um, Jeremiah, of course, Yirmiyahu is the um, is uh, really the first of the of the Maconanim, the first of the uh, of the the writers of elegies. Echa itself can be seen as one great elegy. Um, and uh, what I want to do with you today is kind of ponder that notion of Yirmiya as a, a Maconan but also in the context of his prophecy, right? His prophecy is, he's the prophet of doom. Um, and it's uh, uh, an interesting kind of mix, right? If you're the, uh, the prophet of doom, you are uh, talking about this destruction, convincing people that it's gonna be real. Um, and if anything, for the people of the time, you could be seen almost as an, you know, as an enemy of the people. As an, uh, and that's actually how Yermia was seen uh, during his day, he was imprisoned. Um, he was put in a bar, um, and yet uh, he's also part of the people. Um, and uh, in Echa, he gives voice to uh, to the people's hurt and the people's pain as well. And it's an interesting kind of um, tension: those two roles, the prophet of doom and the Maconan. I want to explore it with you in the context of the very first parak in. Yirmiyo with you. And I want to go through the parak and notice a couple of parallels. Uh, Yair Lichman from YU actually just pointed out to me a couple of hours ago. I shared it with him and a group of Smicha students, uh, some of this material. Uh, and he actually pointed out a psikhodra of Kahana that seems to pick up on some of these themes too. So it seems like uh, we're going in the same direction as the Medrash. But let me show you some of this, uh, some of this stuff in the text. And let's, let's learn through a bit of this. I'm going to share a screen with you uh, and see what we can find here. <clears throat> um, let me see if I can uh, <coughs> find it in Spario. Um, Jeremiah 1. Okay. Uh, let's see if we can share it with you here. Okay, so hopefully you guys can see that. Uh, let's go through some of this. Um, and again, we're at home during COVID-19 days, so that's the sound of a uh, printer over which I have no control printing in the background, so you'll, you'll pardon me on that. Um, okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to read through this with you, and, and as we read, I want you to kind of keep a couple things in mind. What are some of the questions that come up as you read what seems strange, or what sort of observations would you make about this text as we read it? And the other is, what, in what ways does this text resonate with any other, with other, any other text of which you're aware? And I think you're not allowed to talk, but you can, um, you, you actually can probably respond in the chat. So I'll try and monitor the chat uh, and see if I can keep tabs on what it is that you guys are saying. Okay, so here we have up on the screen, Dear Yer Miyahu. And again, sorry for the, the sound. We've got a 
lawnmower on the background over which I have no control also. So uh, try to hear me over that sound. One of the interesting things we hear is uh, what the tribal affiliation of Yermio is, right? He's one of the Kohanim in Anatot and Eretz Binyamin. Um, so we hear that he's in Eretz Binyamin. We hear that he's one of the Kohanim as well. Um, we hear what kings he prophesied in, and then we get the beginning. And it happened in the times of Yayakim that, uh, that, that the word of God came to him um, and here is the beginning of Yermio's prophecy. It says, God speaks to him and says, Before I even formed you, in the womb I knew you, um, I connected with you. And before you even came out of the womb, I consecrated you. A prophet for the nations, I have deigned you. Vaomar and uh, Jeremiah responds and says, Aha, Hashem Elohim. But God, my Lord, Hine lo yadati daber, I don't know how to speak. Um, I can't speak well. Kinar um, anochi, after all, I'm just a child. I'm just a na'ar. Kiakol asher ashlachacha, I'm sorry. Did I read that correctly? At that point, God says to him, Don't say that you're just a lad. Everywhere that I send you, you should go. And everywhere that, and everything that I command you, you should say. Do not fear them whoever them is, because I am with you and I will save you. At that point, Yirmiya gets the very first of his signs, God sends out his hand, and he touched my, my mouth. And God said to me, I have placed my words in your mouth. Today, I have set you up, I have entrusted you over nations and over kingdoms, to uproot, to destroy, to completely make desolate, to build and to plant. And at that point, Yirmiya gets one more sign, a strange vision. And God speaks to him and says, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a staff that's, that's blossoming with these almond fronds. And God said to me, You've seen well. If you've ever been in Israel, you've seen almond fronds. You know that they're the first to blossom in the spring. That's where you get the song. Shkedia Parachat comes from. So God says, I will hurry to fulfill my will. And that's the meaning of this makel, which you've seen. So I want to focus with you ultimately in a few minutes time to get to you what might be the mystery of this makal shaked. Is this the whole story that that I 
will uh, will hurry to do my word? Or is there another level of meaning, uh, another level of symbolism in this makal shaked, and what might it be? And towards and in the end, and towards the end of getting us towards there, uh, I'd like to go back and again just ponder these twelve verses that we've seen, um, and and again try to focus. Uh, what are what are the observations about these verses, and what do they what do they evoke, and are there any uh, other stories in the Torah that they remind you of? So if you want to put any of that in the chat, I'll check it in a moment. Um, let me just take 60 seconds to give you, you know, a, 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 uh, just one take on this, which is that it's strange that, you know, Yermia is one of the only prophets that God says this about, right? That I, I knew you even in the womb, that there was something special about you even from the womb. It's a remarkable thing to say, and it almost seems as if there's like the story itself of Yermia Aleph is a birth story. Um, it's not, of course, the physical the story of the physical birth of Yermia, but it is the story of uh, the birth of Yermia as a prophet, as it were. I was chatting with my son-in-law, Yosef Siegel, about this actually, and he suggested that you know you really could read Yermia Aleph as a kind of birth story of Yermia. God is teaching him, almost like a parent would teach a little child, almost like he's learning how to walk. He's learning the art of Nevuah. Inasmuch as normally, right, in Nevuah, you have a prophet that will see something, and it's up to the prophet to understand what it means, right? But over here, God is, is really taking Yermio through the ropes, almost as if he's teaching him, saying, don't say you're just a kid, right? It's going to be okay. I'm with you. <laughs> like I'm giving you encouragement. You're about to ride, you know, the bike, but don't worry. It has training wheels on it. I'm with you. You're not going to fall. It's going to be fine. Um, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, and he says, what do you see? Right. And that's interesting because that's right. It's God guiding your along, right? There's a vision here. What do you see in this vision? And then Yermia sees the vision. Now, normally, it's up to the prophet to interpret the vision. The prophet sees the vision and gives his interpretation. Here, God gives the interpretation, almost as if God is training Yermia. Here's how you interpret a vision. You've seen well. Here's what it means. Normally, it's up to the Navi to figure out what it means. So you have kind of a birth story of Yermia. But let me just ask you, um, and it strikes me that I can't see my chat while I share a screen with you. So I'm going to briefly unshare this screen so I can kind of see the chat. And uh, the and I guess the question, and I want to raise the question to you, what does it, does this remind you of anything? Is there any other prophets that in the Torah that you know of that this kind of reminds you of, this sort of story? Is there anything here which evokes any of your previous experiences in Chumash or Navi? Uh, of another kind of Navi. Somebody I see on the chat brought up Yermia's name, which is interesting in this context. Does, is Yermia's name itself meaningful? Uh, you could view Yermia's name as a kind of contraction of two words, uh, Yarem and Ka, right? Yarem would mean to lift up and God. What does that mean? Does God mean he lifted up Yermia? Like uh, like uh, the term, I consecrated you, that's one possibility. I think if we look further, we may see something new in uh, in Yermia's name, Yarem Ka, to be lift up and God together. How those how those play out, but to see it 
I think we need to go back to the resonances of, of, of just even these 12 verses. These 12 verses, does it remind you of any other experience with the prophet? Let's see what you say. All right, just looking through this, Manny says, Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, Rabbi Eisenberg says, Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and, uh, and, and Rachel Gold says, Moshe. And I think you're right, it's Moshe Rabbeinu. So uh, let me ask you again, all of you folks who said Moshe Rabbeinu, you can put in the chat, what about this reminds you of Moshe Rabbeinu? What's Moshe like about what we've just read? Um, Sarva Eisenberg says his refusal. And that's clearly true. Uh, I'm going to challenge you, put on the chat, what else reminds you about Moshe? Let me just elaborate on Rabbi Eisenberg for a moment. Is there anything in detail that reminds you of Moshe? But clearly, in broad strokes, yes, right? The classic reluctant prophet is going to be Moshe Rabbeinu. He is reluctant. He doesn't want to do it. Yirmi is also reluctant. But then we get to the question, well, and, and it's interesting, right? Is there a real parallel here? Why was Moshe reluctant, we might ask? And why is Yirmir reluctant? But again, let's see if we can substantiate the parallels. Are there any deeper or more exact parallels with Moshe? Let me go back through what it is you're saying. So Rabbi Asimir says his refusal. Ronnie Benjamin says he can't speak. So that's interesting, right? Let's pick up on that. It's right over here, and, and I'll try to highlight it here in this, uh, uh, let me share the screen again. I'm going to toggle back and forth between sharing the screen with you and unsharing it, because again, I can't, can't see the chat while I share the screen. But if you look at the, the protestation that, um, that is given by your Miyahu, right, lo yadati daber, so lo yadati daber, right? We, we've heard that protestation before at the burning bush, of course. That was what Moshe said, right? Moshe said, I, I, I just don't know. I can't speak. Now, lest you say that uh, well, that's coincidental, that Yermia just happens to, uh, to, to have the same uh, you know, protestation that, uh, that Moshe has, um, if you look carefully at this language, lo yadati daber, does that remind you of anything at the burning bush? Think about the moment that uh, Moshe protests that he can't speak. At that moment, what does, uh, what does God say back to him? I actually put it in a little document for you. Let me see if I can find it. Um, let me see. It's, uh, well, I'm not going to be able to find it over here, but I'll just quote it from memory. Do you remember when, uh, when he says, lo yadati daber, the response that God gives him first is, well, I'll be with you. I'll be with your mouth. But then he says, well, here's Aaron. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. He will speak for you. Yadati ki daber yadaberhu. Isn't that fascinating? Yadati ki daber yadaberhu becomes over here, yadati daber ki. Right? You see, it's exactly the same words. Yadati ki daber yadaberhu. And to such an extent that by the, if you think about it, lo yadati daber is even not grammatical, right? It should have been in, for Jeremiah, lo yadati lidaber. I don't know how to speak, but it's almost like Jeremiah is going out of its way to quote what God says to Moshe back then. Yadati ki daber yadaberhu. There it's actually grammatical. I know that he will speak for you. So it's, it's fascinating. In broad strokes, Jeremiah uses the same excuse as Moshe, I can't speak. But also, 
in using that excuse, quotes from the words that God used in response to Moshe, saying, I can't speak. Okay, so that's one very strong thing that kind of screams out Moshe. Um, I'm going to unshare this with you and see, go back to the chat. Anything else that you found that reminds you of Moshe? Uh, and let me just see. Yes, so Pesci says, oh, the medrash about Moshe's lips, right? Isn't that interesting? You can, now you kind of see where the medrash is coming from. You all know that famous medrash, right? The medrash about how like there's this angel and touches Moshe's lips and touches, where do you get that from? And look at this imagery right over here. Right? I, here's the sign. I've set forth my hand and I've touched your mouth, right? It's, it, it's really kind of remarkable. Um, so, uh, uh, so I think the Medrash might well be picking up on that. Um, let me go back, uh, sort of unshare this for a moment and go back to the chat, see what else you guys have to say. Uh, I think I can actually have, um, what else? uh, yes, uh, this is we'll get to you in just a moment. Um, So, yeah, well, let's actually talk about Moshe as a baby, right? Is there anything about Moshe as a baby that reminds you of this? Think of this. Was Moshe known as a baby? I mean, we have that famous medrash, but even in the text itself, Batero uh, Tokito, his mother sees that he's good. Um, there's something special about this child, even from birth, just special about Yirmiyahu. Um, even from birth. By the way, that language, vatera otokitov, that's what happens when um, the mother first sees Moshe at a moment of his birth. Here you have a heavenly parent looking at a moment of prophetic birth of Yermia, and look at the very first thing uh, that Yermia that sees is this makal shaked. And what does God say? It reminds you of someone, right? You've seen well, but those words Hetav Tali wrote are literally out of what Moses' mother said about him, right? Uh, she saw that he was good. Because this evocation of Moshe being born, right? Uh, you know, just in, the, in this moment that Yirmi himself is born. Now, what's interesting also is not, not only do you get uh, sort of this, this evocation of the end of the burning bush in, uh, in Yermia's demurral, you also get the beginning of the burning bush. Let's go back to that verse when Yermia says, no, I'm not interested. Um, here it is, verse six, right? Um, I, I don't know how to speak. So ask yourself, what does that remind you of? at the beginning of the burning bush story, right? Think about not Moshe's last refusal, but his first refusal. What was his first refusal? His first refusal also focused on this word right over here, Anochi, what did he say? Who am I that I can go to Paro, right? I'm a nobody, I can't go to Paro. And, and so there's this, 
And of course, Yirmiya at some level is also saying, who am I? I'm a nar, I'm a nobody. I, I, I can't go and do this. I can't stand up to people. I'm just a nar. Now, I don't think that that's a coincidence, right? I think, again, the motion Yirmiya uh, parallels seem to be real, um, in which case, it's almost as if Yirmiya is, is kind of explaining to you what was happening with Moshe. When Moshe said, what was he in effect saying? He was in effect saying, I'm just a little kid. I, I feel like a nobody. He's Paro. Who am I? I I'm a nobody. I'm a Moshe. Now, this begins to get to the reason, I believe, why both Yirmiya and Moshe are reluctant. Let me ask you this. Both are reluctant prophets. Why are both reluctant prophets? Why, and I'll put this out in the chat for you guys, right? Um, let me just ask you, if you are Moshe, why are you a reluctant prophet? If you're Yirmiyahu, why are you a reluctant prophet? Debbie Rosenzweig is, is right, by the way, about the shlichut language over here. Uh, it also evokes Moshe, but that's another schmooze and we have some more time. Um, okay, again, so why would Moshe be reluctant? And it, right? Why why would Yirmiya be reluctant? Well, look for a moment at the content of Yirmiya's prophecy. Right? And Razi is getting to my point over here. <laughs> right? um, if you were Moshe, why would you be reluctant? Think about what happened right before the burning bush. And here's where I think Steven Spielberg was right in Prince of Egypt. What happens right before the burning bush? What happens right before the burning bush? Let me actually put this text back on, on screen for you again, so you can see it. What happens right before the burning bush, the great introduction to the burning bush, is that the old king dies, right? And a new king arises. And all of a sudden, Moshe is called by God to the burning bush, and Moshe is reluctant. And it's no, 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 no. I have a, a talk about this in Aleph Beta, uh, about Moshe and Sipora at the end, and where's Moshe's reluctance came from. But my feeling is, is that, you know, if Moshe has five different excuses of why he doesn't want to go, usually when you give five different excuses for something, the real reason you want to go, don't want to do it, isn't one of the five, right? If your kid tells you five different reasons why they can't clean their room, the reason why they can't clean the room isn't one of the five things, it's something else, right? What's the real reason why Moshe doesn't want to go? I can't speak, I don't know your name, I don't, what's the real reason? Well, if the old king just died, who's the new king, right? Who is the new king? And what relationship, what might Moshe have had to that new king? Is that new king someone Moshe might have known? Moshe grew up in the palace. He grew, he must have had a brother-like relationship to that new king. That new king must have been a little kid when he was a little kid in the palace, right? And now God is coming to him and says, you're going to have to go up against him. And now you're Moshe, what do you think? Listen to these words. Who am I that should go to Parah? Or as Jeremiah would put it, uh, I'm just a little nar. By the way, think about the word nar in terms of Moshe. What does the word nar remind you of in terms of Moshe, everybody? When was Moshe called a nar? The first time a surrogate mother saw him, the daughter of Pharaoh, who would raise him in the palace. She sees a little 
boat and the bulrushes, the name Na'ar Bochet, and there was this little child crying, right? And that was the birth moment for Moshe. And it's almost as if Moshe is saying, uh, it's almost like you're, you know, in saying ki na'ar anochi, he's almost channeling what Moshe was saying back to God. I feel like a little kid. You know, I'm going to go, what, I'm going to go and stand up to this Pharaoh. He remembers me when I was eight years old, when I was chariot racing around with him. I, what, I'm going to go home, and it's, of course, it's all of our experiences, you know. You can be a nice, successful adult, but when you go home for Thanksgiving dinner and you hang out with your, with your, with your brothers and your sisters, somehow the dynamics of when you were eight years old just reasserts itself and you just feel like you're eight years old again back on the family. And that's Moshe. I feel like I'm back on the family. I feel like I'm a nobody. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think I can do it. To which God responds to Yirmiyah. Don't say you're just a nar. I will send you and you will go, just like he says to Moshe at the burning bush. Just like the burning bush also. What did God say at the burning bush? Don't worry, I will be with you. One more time to Yirmiyah. So the point I want to make is there's something very Moshe-like about Yirmiyah, right? And I think it, to really understand the meaning of the parallels, you really have to get deeper and deeper into this question, where is Moshe's reluctance coming from? And how does that shed light possibly on, Yirmiya, on Yirmiya's reluctance? You think about the way Yirmiya's prophecy is structured. It's prophecy structured right over here. This is the essence of his prophecy in verse 10. Hayom. By the way, that word Hayom, also borrows from the burning bush. Where do we get that word at the burning bush? Right? What does God say? Pakod pakadati I have right set you up to redeem you, to take you out. And of course, one great connection between Moshe and Yirmiya is Moshe, of course, is the great prophet of redemption. He brings us out of exile into the promised land. We stay in the promised land for hundreds and hundreds of years until we leave. And through whose prophecy do we leave? Through Yirmiya, right, who ultimately takes us out of the promised land and into exile. So in this way, they're almost mirror images of each other. But getting back to verse 10, See you today, I, I have entrusted upon you today, Nations, Lintosh Balintots, Lavid Valaros, Livnot Balintoa. Six verbs to uproot, to destroy, to trample, right? Livnot Balintoa, but to build and to plant. And if you think about those six words that encompass Yermia's prophecy, what if I asked you, do those six words apply only to Yermia, or would they also apply to Moshe? Only Yermia, right, or also Moshe, right? What do you say? Also Moshe. Now, the most obvious thing is who Livnot Valintoa is with Moshe, right? If I'm Moshe, so Livnot Valintoa is the Jews, right? I'm going to, as it even says in Shirat Ayam, to the Yemu Vatita Emu Nachalatcha, right? The I'm going to bring you, and I'm going to plant you, and, and I'm going to help build you. But there was also destruction that Moshe had to do. Lintosh Valintos. Who was destroyed? Egypt was destroyed. And that seems like a very simple thing, right? Uh, I could do that prophecy. I don't have to be reluctant. 
I'm building up my people, my brethren, I'm building up Israel. I'm not building, I'm destroying the enemy, Egypt. Except is it really so clear for Moshe? Again, getting back to the question of why Moshe is such a reluctant prophet. If there's five demurals, five reasons why he's not going to go, what's the real reason he's not going to go? And the answer might just be, not just because I feel like an idiot going up against my eight-year-old nemesis, this other brother, but he's a brother. There's a part of Moshe's identity that's wrapped up in Egypt. He was brought up in the palace. He was brought up to see all these people as brothers. Indeed, God comes out of the clouds, and the very last thing God says to him after Moshe keeps on saying no, keeps on saying no, he says, you know what? I've got another brother for you. Here's Aaron. Aaron Achicha Halevi. Aaron, your brother, the Levi. Why did he have to say that? Aaron Achicha Halevi? I care that he's a Levi? No, he's saying Aaron. Which Aaron? Aaron Achicha, your brother. Which brother? I have more than one brother. Your Levi brother. So as if God is saying, I know you have more than one brother. I know I'm asking you to go up against another brother. But you have another brother who will accept you. You have Aram. You have a brother on the other side too. You owe it to your brothers on the other side. Aaron will help you connect to your brothers on the other side. The visceral experience of another brother, Barach of Asana Falibo, who sees you and smiles and accepts you, even though you look like an Egyptian. This is our first introduction to Aaron at the end of the burning bush. It might have been Moshe's first introduction to Aaron too. When would he have ever met Aaron? He wouldn't have met Aaron in the palace. It's God revealing to him, these are your brothers too. And ultimately what I'm asking you to do is to stand up for one brother against another brother because this brother is being a bully and you have to stand up for him. And sometimes you have to do that as painful as it is to oppose a brother. And indeed, that's what Moshe himself does as some of you wrote in the chat when he sees the Shnei Ivrim Nitzim, two brothers fighting with each other, but one is a bully and one is an aggressor and one is a victim. And he has to stand up to the aggressor and the aggressor says, what are you gonna kill me? And he runs away and it's terrible. And there's this dilemma. How can I stand up against a brother? But if you're bullying my other brother, I have to stand up. And you're a reluctant prophet. I, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to be popular. I, I don't even know if I'm loyal. What does loyalty really even mean to me? Is becomes the heart of the question for both Yermia and Moshe. What does it mean to be loyal? And in Yermia's case, it's even more wrenching. In Moshe's case, there were two brothers, but the two brothers were separate in space. There was Egypt over here and there was Israel over there. For one brother, one brother would need to be destroyed, the brother that's a bully, the other brother would need to be saved, would be saved. But, and the other brother is Israel. But now the question I wanna ask you is when we get into Yermia, Yermia is also dealing with two brothers. One he destroys, or one he's the prophet of doom for, and the other is Livnot Belintoa. But you'll come to me and you'll say, Foreman, that's crazy. What do you mean there's two brothers? There's only one brother. In this case, he's always talking about Israel, right? He's going to destroy Israel. He's going to destroy Malchut Yehuda. He's going to be the prophet of doom for Malchut Yehuda. And he's going to be Livnot Belintawa also. Yes, but the difference is time. Which generation? One generation will be destroyed, will be uprooted, so another generation can be planted. And it's almost as if, to borrow from Moshe, one generation is bullying another. It's almost as if one's the aggressor. It, it's almost as if God is saying, do you know why you're loyal? Do you know why it's okay what you're doing? Because 
you're really about Livanot Blintawa. You're about building the same way Moshe was about building. You're about planting, but you can't plant unless you uproot. There's something that needs to be uprooted. And as long as that thing that's growing, that's not growing well, continues, you can't plant. You can't build the future. Remember that point in Yermia, when Yermia, on the eve of Hurban, looks out, on the eve of destruction, looks out, and after all of the prophecies of doom, he comes and says that there will yet be vines and there will yet be building, and he goes and he buys a field from Hanamel and he plants a vineyard, right? It's because there'll be a future. It's 70 years away, but it's a future. It's a future that has to be planted, but in order to be planted, there's destruction that has to come, but in the whole, it works out. And that's the painful thing. At the time, Yermia looks like a traitor. Yermia looks, right, if you go in the later chapters of Yermia, Yermia, Laman Hey, Laman Vav, Laman Zion, Laman Chet, when he's prophesying doom, he's saying, surrender, surrender to the costume, give in to the Babylonians, that's the only way. You look like you're sapping the morale of the troops, you've been put in prison, you're sedition, it's treason, and yet it's not treason. Taken in the whole, right, in generations, in the view of generations. With, with Moshe, the two brothers are separated in space. There's Egypt over here. There's Israel over there. In Yermio, the two brothers are separated in time, right? There's one generation here that needs to be uprooted, perhaps, so that another generation can exist. And this is the challenge of Yermio. It really is, do you see yourself as a loyal, as a loyal person? And with this, I want to get to one last connection between the story of Yermia and, uh, and really the story of Moshe. One of the great differences between the story is that when Yermia protests, sorry, when Moshe protests that he can't speak well, God has a solution and the solution involves Aaron. Here's Aaron, your brother. When Yermia protests that he can't speak well, there is no solution called Aaron, right? He's not given Aaron. But is he given anything that reminds you of Aaron? And some of you have mentioned it earlier on the chat. He is given something that reminds him of Aaron. It's the Makal Shaked, Ethan says, right? What does the Makal Shaked remind you of? When else in Tanakh have you ever met a Makal Shaked, right? A, um, a, a, a staff that blossoms. And of course, the answer is, it is the blossoming staff of in Parsha Korach. It is Korach's, it is, it is the staff of Aaron. So in our remaining moments, I want to actually look at the story of Aaron's blossoming staff with you, because I think it says something powerful to Yirmia when it comes to loyalty. Aaron's blossoming staff. How did that happen? The people are riled up. They're dividing the nation. They want Aaron's kahuna, right? And um, and there's this point where God says to Aaron and to Moshe, and these are the, actually literally the words, lift yourselves up from this people. Get yourselves out of here, and I will destroy them. Moshe and Aaron at that moment become the prophets of doom, right? This is the moment where if they listen to God, Israel is destroyed. This is the golden calf moment for Aaron. At that moment, Aaron doesn't listen to God. He actually defies God. 
Aaron, instead of lifting himself up, throws himself down. He falls on the ground. And then, at Moshe's command, he runs out into the people with his incense pan. Moshe says, there's a plague that's starting. It's killing all the people. And Aaron goes and seems to know that if he goes out there with incense, that if he can stop the plague, why, how does he know that? What's the meaning of the incense? How will it stop the plague? All that's very interesting questions. We can get into that later. But assume that Aaron knows that this is how you stop the plague. And he goes. And and ben and ben and he stands before the, the 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 live people and the dead people, and he literally single-handedly saves the people. And immediately after that, God says, "Everybody, put their staffs." And I want to show you something. And Aaron's staff is alive; it's organic. It's as if it is planted, and it blossoms. And you've got these wonderful shkedim and all of these things. And it's fascinating that. It's this blossoming staff that God commands that should be placed next to the Aaron forever as an oath leave Mary, as a sign for all who would rebel. Now, if I would imagine a sign for all who would rebel, I would imagine a sign that's intimidating, right? Like a big snake, like a copper snake or something like that. That would be a sign that might scare me into not rebelling. But a beautiful blossoming makal shaked, that's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Why? I'm not scared of a makal shaket. It's beautiful. I'll admire it. It's like the rose bushes for Shabbos. I'll put it on my table. I'm not scared of that. Why does it stop me from rebelling? The answer, I think, is that what God was showing the people was that something different about Aaron. He was, wasn't trying to intimidate people about Aaron. He was showing people that Aaron is someone that you wouldn't want to rebel against the other. He's the genuine article. All of these other staffs are dead. His staff is alive. It's, it, he's the genuine thing. It's real. It's alive. It blossoms. It flourishes. Look who Aaron is. He's the real deal. I just commanded him to raise himself up from among you, and look what he did. He did the opposite. He stuck with you. He defied me to be with you. He ran in and at the risk of his life and put himself in the middle of the Negev to save you all. And everyone accepts that. And that's the end of the rebellion of Kara. That oat leave named Mary, that sign, that staff. And isn't it fascinating that Yermia sees that staff? Moshe was given an Aaron. Yermia, as he's born, his parent says in heaven, just like his mother said to Moshe, ah, you're very good. You've seen very good. What did he see? It's almost like you can imagine Moshe's first vision might have been his brother peering over him, might have been Aaron. This little baby opens his eyes and sees Aaron. And what is this little baby, Yermia, so to speak, as he's ushered into Nebuah, what does he see? He sees Aaron's staff, a symbol of Aaron, telling him something, perhaps, about the meaning of his Nebuah. Yes, you might be the prophet of doom, but it's not about doom. It's about Livnot Belim Toa. You are there as a loyal servant of Israel to help everything flourish. And I'm going to show you a flourishing staff. And do you know what that flourishing staff is? It's an oath leave named Mary. That's what these people need to see. That's what the people need to see. The people need to understand not to rebel to, because they have to understand that you are with them, that you will never leave them, that you're a loyal member of their people. That it, as much of the hard things that you say, it's out of love and it's out of a, a feeling of leave not belim toa. You are Aaron to them. You are with them. And if there's ever a choice even between me and between them, it's them, right? You are going to be Aaron and you are going to be the floor, you are going, and you must be 
the, the, the flourishing sap. When God told Aaron to leave, to lift himself up and leave the people, Aaron's greatest moment was in not doing that and defying that. Isn't it very interesting that the word to lift up is yarem, right? Yud resh mem. Aaron, who did the opposite, what does his staff become? An ot livne meri, a sign for all who would rebel. How do you spell meri? Mem resh yud. It's yud resh mem, backwards. He did the very opposite of yud resh mem. He was told to lift himself up. Instead, he stuck with the people, and that became the sign that people would understand, you know what? Rebellion isn't what it's about anymore. I'm with this guy. I'm with his mission. And it was that inspiration that got people to not rebel. God seems to be telling Yermia, this is your dilemma. This is your challenge. You need to be a prophet of doom, of lintosh, lintosh, laviv, v'laros, but a prophecy, a prophet of building up, livnot, lintoa also. And how are you going to do it? By being an Aaron. You need to grasp Moshe's staff. Your destiny is you've heard God come to you, and you've heard God say what God said to Aaron. Lift yourself up. And that explains your name. When you get born, you get a name. Yirmiya is born into prophecy. And what name does he get? Yirmiya. Lift up God. It's the same thing that Aaron heard. Your challenge is, how will you deal with it? Can you take lift up God and turn it into an oath they marry? Can you stand up and tell the people, look them in the eye and tell them what they're facing, but be so much a part of them that you can't help but inspire with your loyalty somehow. You have to be able to, to balance those two. You have to be able to bring the energy of Aaron and his loyalty into your prophecy, and then you can finally be successful. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's why Yermia is the Makonim. Yermia is of the people, and of the people in the destruction, and the voice of lament <clears throat> forevermore. The voice of the people is Yermia. Yermia, the same voice that voices the prophecy of destruction, is also part of the people being destroyed. And so he has two aspects to his nevuah, right? The, the Jeremiah aspect of calling out the evil and being the prophet of doom, but also of the people, right? Of the people and by the people. And that is why Yermia, I think, stands the test of time and why his lamentations are perhaps the most poignant of all, right? He's the one who has to balance those two roles. It's not a role any one of us would like. It's a role that both Moshe and Yermia avoid. How could you go up against a brother in order to save another brother, right? But it's Yermia's mission in life. I think that what's, that's what makes him um, uh, so powerful. I think that's where the power of lamentations of Echa really comes from. So I'll leave you with those thoughts. Um, and uh, again, just want to invite you, if any of you guys want to check out any of our stuff in Aleph Beta, it's a new video this year that I did on, which elaborates on some of these themes uh, a little bit further, uh, some of the wrenching dilemmas involved with, uh, with pain and suffering. Uh, it's, a, it's a new course this year, uh, ab.video or alephbeta.org, you can check it out. It's a pleasure to be with, here, with you here on YU Torah today. 
thank you for spending some time with me. I think I only have till three, which is about now. So I'll sign off and leave you in other good hands. I wish you a meaningful fast for the rest of your day. Thanks.